joining me on the YSGP podcast again today. I'm very excited because I'm here with Austin O'Carroll, who's a GP in Dublin who works in homelessness services, which is the same job as I've been doing for the last 18 months or so. Um, so I'm really pleased to talk to him. And yeah, Austin, thanks for joining me. This is my pleasure, Joanna. Delighted to talk to you myself. Yeah. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and what um, led you to uh, do the work that you do? Okay, my background is uh, I'm a GP, but also I think it's important that I'm, um, I'll give you a little bit of background that I'm a GP working in inner city Dublin. And I suppose most, a lot of my work has been doing to address marginalisation in terms that I worked in an inner city deprived practice that would have worked with a very marginalised population where there have been a lot of poverty, deprivation, a lot of drug misuse, a lot of challenging behaviours. And then I went on to develop services for migrants initially and then for homeless people. I founded um, two particular primary care services for homeless people, Safety Net Dublin, which provides um, in-reach to a number of hostels, drop-in centres uh, for both homeless people and migrants, and also mobile outreach services for homeless people, as well as a range of other addiction and uh, non-addiction services for migrants and homeless people. I also found a GMQ Medical, which provides, again, similar. It's a drop-in centre for uh, addiction and GP services for homeless and migrants in Dublin. I also founded a GP training scheme that trains GPs to work in areas of deprivation and with marginalised populations. I think it was the first internationally to do so, and uh, very proud of that one. And I also set up an organisation called GP Care for All, co-founded it, that develops GP practice in areas of deprivation where there's low GP to patient ratios. Uh, in terms of my background, it's important to say that um, I am born with a disability. And uh, interestingly, uh, I have thalidomide. My mother took the thalidomide drug and I was born with the congenital abnormalities as a result. So originally, I wasn't allowed to do medicine. They said I wouldn't be able to do it. But uh, I originally got involved in working in the inner city through work with an organization called Vincent de Paul. I'm agnostic, but it was a charitable organization. And I learned a huge amount of working with people in the inner city and gained my passion for working with people there. But then I subsequently worked at disability politics. And in there, I learned a different approach from the charitable approach, which is the rights-based approach. And uh, I suppose that really would be the basis for how I approach things that, you know, people who live in deprivation shouldn't have been born in deprivation and therefore should have a right to all the remedial action that address the effects of deprivation, including particularly healthcare. Long answer to short question. Okay. <laughs> no, that's great. That's an amazing story. I hadn't realised um, that your personal background had affected the work you did in such a way. Um, and before you set these initiatives up, was there much for people experiencing homelessness in Ireland or was healthcare very patchy for them? There was one uh, nursing service down the south side uh, that served with one clinic. And then basically a nurse was, I joined a nurse who was working in the north side of Dublin. And uh, so basically I was the first GP to be working. So there was a GP who would previously worked at the south side but had stopped. But when I was working, there was no GP and then I started. Now we have, God, we have up to 20 drop-in clinics in North Dublin for homeless and for migrants. We have a mobile health screening unit. We have a mobile health unit. There's two or three drop-ins down in Cork, two in in Limerick, uh, two in Galway, and um, uh, a number of range of other services. So, yeah, there's a huge expansion over the last 20 years in services. Has the population requiring them increased in Dublin as well? It has. Um, 
the um, homelessness is probably one of the biggest political issues actually in, in Ireland. It's not just homelessness, housing. The cost of housing has gone up, the cost of rent, particularly since 2007 with the international recession, the homelessness has, has increased significantly. And the numbers, again, they dropped a bit during the pandemic, and that was a, the effect of the pandemic uh, on rental prices. And um, they actually did a, a um, eviction freeze at the same time. But since the the sort of COVID restrictions have eased, so have re uh, restrictions on rent, and so have all the Airbnb started filling up. So suddenly homelessness is increasing. Yeah, again. I think it's a, a problem everywhere. Um, and it's interesting you say about the GP registrars, because that's one of the issues we have in Scotland as well, because the more affluent practices tend to get more GP registrars, um, and people don't necessarily get so much experience of working in areas of deprivation. So I did a, a fellowship after I finished GP training, and that's how I got interested in healthcare for homeless people. But I don't think there's a, is it quite large scale what you do with the registrars? There's quite a few people through it. What we did was we actually, um, when we started, there was North Dublin and South Dublin, are, 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 there's often jokes about North Dublin and South Dublin. So for example, they'll often say, how do you know a North, what do you call a North Sider in a suit? And you say the accused. Or what you ask a Northsider in a suit, what you say to a Northsider in a suit, two Big Macs and a packet of chips. So there's all these jokes which relate to the fact that the Northside is, is more impoverished. And we knew that the GP patient ratio was um, one to, uh, significantly um, lower in the Northside, despite it having higher deprivation. And there were three GP training schemes in the South Side, and there was none in the North Side. So when we started it, it was the obvious place to start it. And Interestingly, they, I, everyone said to me, don't start with the focus on deprivation and marginalization. I said, why not? And they said, nobody will apply. And uh, since we've started, we have topped the league almost every single year. We we're off the top one or two years of applications. And I think um, it actually totally surprised uh, everyone, including me. And in a way, I think we've become a bit cynical about youth. That, uh, but in fact, I've learned to be inspired by this because it shows they want to make a difference. And we just had to show them. Absolutely. And I think it depends a little bit on how it's framed as well, doesn't it? So if you frame it as a positive thing, sort of providing care for the most marginalised populations, then um, it's great that people are interested. Um, and recently we had some medical students as well come to us and say they didn't feel they were getting enough content about caring for marginalised populations in their curriculum and they want more there's, there's a few things that really interesting about the GP training. First of all, is we 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 run a, a we train them to be really good GPs, and then we have a social medicine module, but in their uh, which is really important, and then with their practice are in areas of deprivation, but in their fourth year they also spend one day a week for three months working with homeless services, one day a week for three months working with uh, prison and ref and migrant services, and one day a week for three months working with drug services. And that's to decrease the fear of working with marginalised and increase their ability to empathise. And it works really well. And there's lots of work around that. But interestingly, um, they also, the trainees, formed their own vision and mission committee. And they decided they wanted to make the vision and mission real through work. So they, on their own, they just advised the, um, their own, they, first of all, they devised, they got, they got an Irish street medicine symposium. They set up the very first one, which had 100 people from all over Ireland attending and it's continued every year since. Then they set up two clinics for homeless people themselves. And they also ran a campaign to, against the whole asylum seeking process in Ireland and the, um, the way people are housed. 
uh, and that along with a number of other projects since that this year we're looking at LGBTQI friendly practices. So it was amazing that actually a lot of energy came directly from them to address these issues. And of our graduates, we now we've assessed it, and 95% of our graduates are working want want to work in areas. Sorry, 95% are working in areas of deprivation. 11% are are, are working with um, full time with marginalised. And 55% are working part-time with marginalised, say, in homeless clinics or migrant clinics or uh, addiction clinics. So it's a really, it does work. When you provide this type of training, as you know yourself, I presume it's the Pioneer, sir, Pioneer post-fellowships you did, it really does help GPs focus um, on providing care to these particular populations who so need this care. That's that's amazing, actually, and it makes me think we need something. Well, there are various things, as you've highlighted in Scotland, but it makes me think we need something more, really, um, to, to to really engage everyone. Um, yeah, and also, I guess, so when you work with marginalised populations or drug users, you have probably a higher percentage of consultations that we might call challenging um, but the skills that you learn by handling those consultations are, of course, relevant in any general practice job um, and people and learning not to stigmatize people with um, substance use disorders it is relevant probably wherever you work. Not that I think people consciously stigmatize. Um, well, perhaps we'll come on to talk about this a little bit in a bit, but I don't think many doctors consciously stigmatize people um, with substance use disorders. But I know that people who experience homelessness certainly feel very stigmatized by services, which I well, I have a particular approach to this. I, I believe we all have prejudicial attitudes. We're members of society and all society has huge prejudicial attitudes. And a lot of them are very subtle. You may not be aware of them. And uh, so, you know, it's not shameful to suddenly discover. I've often discovered that I'm talking to a homeless person in a way that I wouldn't talk to a middle class person. And I realize that this is my prejudicial attitude coming up. So it's not to be ashamed of your, of your prejudices. It's to be actively aware that they exist and try and identify them and be aware in practice when you're displaying them so you can address them and see where they exist in your policies. So to me, it's, it's this idea that there's good people who don't have prejudices and there are bad people who don't have, who have loads of prejudices. That that binary approach, I don't agree with. Um, so so that, that I never ascribe to that. We all have prejudices because we're all members of society. I have two have prejudice against disability, for example, if I'm disabled. So a classic one was people often say to Austin, I don't think of you as disabled. And I'd say, I don't think of myself as disabled. And why would I not think of myself as disabled? Because I obviously am. And it's because I somehow thought disability meant unsuccessful, uh, um, unattractive. And I didn't want to be that. So rather than say change the the prejudice I had, I changed the person to be non-disabled me. So, and that's what people do. So that just shows you how subtly prejudice works and it happens. So every, all of us have it, to be aware of it. We can only challenge that through trying to see the person as a whole person and trying to find out something about them rather than seeing them as a stereotype and focusing purely on the medicine. Um, so if you're just saying, oh, well, you know, you can't have pregabalin because it's not indicated because of not nerve pain. But if you find out something more about the person, well, you might still not prescribe them pregabalin. The conversation will often be easier <laughs> um, because they feel that you've seen them as a person 
rather than simply a number. And often you can find some other solution, which may, may be helpful. But actually, I think one of the papers you wrote was really influential to me in thinking about stigma and prejudice in services. So you wrote a paper called Making Sense of Street Chaos, um, where you described your experience um, spending time um, on the streets of Dublin with people experiencing homelessness. And I was really interested because not many practicing GPs have the time to do that kind of in-depth research as well. So I was interested in what your motivations were for doing that and I sort of ended up in research by accident. Um, I think I always thought I wasn't good at research and um, I thought that research was for other people, but I always recognized it was very important. So I was always trying to develop research capability in my own practice, but getting other people to do it. Then one day someone needed supervision and their person who was to supervise them disappeared. So I ended up having to engage with it. And then I suddenly found that I actually liked it because two things. One is I liked it because I was suddenly in working with research in an area that I was actually really passionate about. And secondly, it was qualitative research, which I instinctively prefer over, uh, have a preference to over quantitative. I recognize quantitative is very important, but just my preference in doing research is qualitative. And so I ended up deciding to do a, um, a doctorate and I did ethnographic research, which was really interesting. And I suppose the advantages of doing a doctorate is um, it teaches you so many skills, both in terms of research, but also in terms of developing proposals to be able to look at the evidence base and to also, um, you become world expert in a very specific area overnight. Like you become a world expert. And uh, uh, the area, and also I picked an area I really wanted to understand, which is why did homeless people use health services differently? And part of it was because there was a lot of criticism of, of so-called, and I put in, in inverted commas, specialized services, services specifically for homeless people saying that, you know, we're creating parallel services and we're stigmatizing them by pushing them into separate services. So, and also, the other thing I really gained was I did ethnographic research and I went on the streets and met with homeless people. I'd often sit out in the streets with rough sleepers, like dropped, went into drop-ins and into hostels. And I actually learned a different way of engaging with them. And uh, uh, that was very useful to me as a doctor as well going forward um, to, to change the way I engaged. Um, so anyway, the, the, but the findings really influenced the way I have worked and the way I have developed services since. So what I, the basic finding is I found is that the reason we have to create specific services for homeless people is the main health services designed for middle class people who um, have phones, diaries, um, can, you know, um, can keep appointments, uh, fit them into their schedules, who value their health because uh, and so they'll keep their appointments with their doctor and they don't have any competing um, overpowering competing priorities so in this i noticed that for example homeless people they don't come i saw someone yesterday who had a um you know a full-blown um dvt and they've had it for several several um, um several days and I said, you have to go to hospital. And they said, I'll be fine. I'll leave it till tomorrow. So they, they, they leave things till the last minute. And they, they and even when you tell them how serious it is, they still don't want to do it. Uh, they tend to not keep appointments. We had 40 people for hep C treatment. You know, this cures hep C, um, potentially fatal condition. And 23 missed their first appointment, 16 missed their second appointment, and only three completed treatment. Um, we found that they... Um, they also tend to avoid general practice and they tend to go to ED. And... So why do they have these particular behaviors which seem 
you know, they're the ones who most need healthcare. Why do they not use the health system the way it should? And I found that there was a number of reasons, external barriers and what I call internalized barriers. So the external barriers is where, uh, you know, physical ones such as distance. If you have a GP in the suburbs and you're in the inner city, it's too far. Um, administrative barriers such as appointments it's like sending out hospital appointments to homeless people is mad first of all they often don't get it second of all they just don't keep appointments it's not they don't have diaries they don't do that um then the third thing i found out was uh, you know administrative barriers forms like you know to get free health care in ireland like all homeless people should have free health care when we first did research in 2005 we found that almost 50 percent didn't have access to free health care because they didn't fill in the forms and the forms, if you want a homeless person not to use your service, get them to fill a form. And if you really don't want, make that form as complex as possible. And that's what the forms are to get access to healthcare. Are very complex. Another big one was stigma. And uh, I, I always give the story of um, I, I had two patients who were rough sleeping and um, on cocaine and heroin and alcohol. And uh, they had been like that for three years. And then one Sunday, they, um, it was uh, no services were open because it was a weekend. It was lashing rain and their tent was blown down. They were wandering around and they went freezing cold and then he became hypothermic. So they went into a casualty. And as the doctor or nurse were cutting off his clothes, the doctor turned to him and said, this is disgusting, the condition you've got your into, to his partner. And when they recovered, they swore they would not go to casualty ever again uh, unless they were dying on their feet. And... Um, I felt sorry for that doctor because, you know, I, again, you know, he's displaying societal prejudice in a hospital, you know, where everything's pressurized, societal prejudice will really come be, be, be more likely to come out. And what is because that, you know, he fails to help that patient, you know, he, that, you know he's, he caused that patient to not want to go to hospital. But the second thing is that doctor lost an opportunity. Those two same patients went into the outreach service that we run, which was staffed by GP trainees with with GP supervision and the trainee got chatting to them and persuaded them then to go down to a um, another clinic where they saw the fantastic Dr. Clean and Ikiari persuaded them to come up to us. We got them onto opiate substitution treatments. They got them into an alcohol detox. We got them into accommodation. We got them onto an educational program, pre-university program. And the story started to diverge here. The woman did very well and graduated from a university, um, pre-university course. And the guy just two or three months before it's due to complete, became very, very depressed and anxious. And I think he became very doubtful of his ability to complete. And he had a bit of a nervous breakdown. He didn't finish it. And she went on to college, to a very prestigious college, and has just literally completed a psychology degree and has gone on to do a master's. He very sadly, we kept on trying to bring him into do education, but he just kept on, he lost his total confidence and ability. He sadly committed suicide. And I saw that as his childhood trauma, where he literally thought he had no hope and he thought that he, he actually couldn't do this so he lost his hope for the future so it's a sad outcome but also an amazing outcome for this other woman who's now going on to do a master's and going back to that doctor even though like he lost an opportunity to make an intervention that offered people a choice and we all enter medicine to help people so that's what stigma does it it, it not only affects the clients it affects ourselves um then I found internalized barriers. And internalized barriers are things you internalize from the external outside. So a number of homeless people think they're going to die young. And so they don't bother about their health. And why do they think they're going to die young? Because homeless people do die young. A number of homeless people um, defer things to the future. Say, I'll leave until tomorrow. And that actually is a good way of surviving homelessness. You know, let's, you know, just cope with the moment. If you live in the moment, it's a good way of surviving homelessness. It's not a good way of managing your health. 
other homeless people um operated um they 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 found they had compete you know competing priorities such as you know they had to get food they had to get accommodation they had to get drugs they had to get alcohol so you know maslow's hierarchy of needs alcohol and drugs were at the bottom so health was way too far up the, the hierarchy for them to reach um and then for other people was that the way they'd learned through their childhood you know and i say it's internalized to manage say anger is that they would become if they perceived a slight they'd become very angry so they were consistently getting barred from health services and um, then if they get barred that repeats the trauma so to avoid avoid repeating the trauma stop going to the health service so these are what i call internalized barriers and by understanding this i now think that i don't think in terms of specialized services i think in terms of we now just need to design services for homeless people that suit their health usage needs and those are services that go to where they are go to the hostels go to the food halls our drop-ins and do mobile outreach and our services so for example we brought the hep c program to the clinic to the the hostel and of the 40 people we got them all treated on site uh, they didn't have they only had to do one visit at the hospital which they had a peer worker going with them so it changed the whole way we design services and create services because we're designing services for their needs and their way of using health services so much of what you say, I absolutely recognise. And the hospitals send appointment letters. Yeah. Patients move around all the time. They don't get the appointment letters. They don't have a phone or a diary. Um, so it's really difficult for them to attend. And there's also, I think, so the scenario you describe of a patient with a probable DVT who doesn't want to go up for a scan, it's common. I've seen it a lot as well it kind of involves you taking on a bit more risk as a doctor because um, you kind of negotiate with the patient, okay, well, why don't we have some delta power in and once you've sorted out X, Y, Z, maybe you'll go up tomorrow. Or on occasion, I've actually treated the patient with a purely clinical diagnosis because it proved just almost impossible to get him up to, um, to the hospital for a scan. So I think... Um, that can sometimes feel quite exposing for a more inexperienced GP like me um, yeah. as well. Maybe you have to carry a little more risk. But being in a specialist service helps with that. Um, and having things like support workers who will go out and find patients and take them to the hospital is so important. And we yeah. have some of that. But of course, we could always have more. No, I think the key workers and the peer workers are just so important because a lot of this is, you know, patients who don't trust and the way you trust is you have people you go chase them and you stay faithful to them and you can't be going out doing all the chasing you sometimes have to but you don't all the time and you need those key workers to support you and to help people because you know there's no point in just looking at a person's addiction and not managing their accommodation there's no point in just treating their um their um growing abscess and not treating their addiction and not treating their accommodation and not treating their social well get their social welfare sorted you have to provide the whole complete package and the story you told us is an amazing story about the woman, obviously very sad about the man. That's quite rare, that sort of level of recovery um, from social marginalisation. Sometimes what I've come to see with some of my patients is that for them, the homelessness isn't just physical. Obviously, that's the most important part of it. But they also feel very disconnected in their lives because often they've come from very troubled family backgrounds and if they have ongoing relationships with families those relationships can be quite difficult and then they sometimes find a form of community in the homeless 
sort of well in hostels and rough sleeping areas and so on but then when they move out of that it Mm. can be very difficult and sometimes we see patients have actually been moved into accommodation and sadly they die you know shortly afterwards um and it's always quite difficult but i i think that's probably a social problem that's too much for us as gps to to solve really well they they they, i know that well there's two things one is i i do agree about a lot of people not recovering but i think what we're thinking about there is we have to think again. I don't know in Dublin may be different, but there's a lot of people who dip into homelessness for a short period of time. You might have only one engagement with them, and sometimes you know you get the sort services. So there's a lot of people who do get out of homelessness, but then there are some people who become chronically entrenched in homelessness, and they're longer entrenched in homelessness as you describe. You just become socialised, and it's harder and harder. And I know there's evidence to show that the Housing First project that um, that sometimes the mortality rate goes up in your first year after being housed. And there is queries that it could be due to the loss of that that community. They're not 100% certain, but I've seen that myself. People recently housed who sadly died. Um, so it's, you know, the effects of homelessness aren't easily solved by just a home. You're right, it's much more complex. Yeah, um, of course, yeah, the same in Edinburgh. There are people who have a brief time in homelessness and then, um, you know, uh, well, we don't see them, I guess, is the problem because they, they move on. Um, so... And we don't hear. Yeah, the other thing you wrote recently was you wrote a, a piece for the BJGP, which was about personality disorder, which is another label I've often found troubling because it always feels very pejorative. And that was the thrust of your piece that it is pejorative and harmful to patients. But although on occasion, some patients seem to be reclaiming it a little for themselves, like the emotionally unstable personality disorder, they'll, you know, they'll say, oh, it's because of my past trauma, I've got BPD. Um, But in general, I think it's pretty negative. And was that, that was clearly what you, what drove you to, to write that, I guess. So I suppose I, I call it the triple F disorder. If I give you the three Fs, the first F is people are born into poverty. Second F is that we we blame them uh, for um, the effects of poverty. So we blame them for being poor. Like I know previous, uh, for example, the Tory Prime Minister David Cameron criticised people on welfare. Um, I know our own uh, Taoiseach previously, pre- not the present one, previous one, pre- criticised people on welfare as they, they didn't get up early enough in the morning, which they get up early, very early, actually. He was wrong. Um, but the second thing is we we blame them for the effects of poverty, such as addiction, such as homelessness, because they are clearly the effects of poverty. And the, the third F is where we medicalise it and we say that they have a personality disorder. And I particularly hate this term because, first of all, is um, it's like it's 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 labeling your core personality as being deformed and you know we've we as doctors saying your core personhood is disordered and this is despite the fact that we know that a lot and they recognize this that this is usually the your behavior displaying are related to poverty or, or related to past trauma um so even if you were to call it childhood trauma disorder i might accept it more but i still think um, first of all, is I think it, it falls down a number of reasons. One is it's 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 not a disease. A disease is where there's a presence of pathology. There is no pathology in, in personality disorder. Uh, there's no identified pathology. It is vague. It's made of you can have 256 features, all very combined 
to make a diagnosis of, of personality disorder. And these features, you know, you can actually have two pe people only sharing one of these features with the diagnosis of personality of these 256. They're so broad, the actual thing, and they're vague, things like manipulativeness. Like, you know, these are vague concepts and they're, they're really judge subjective judgments. And also a bit social class judgments and moral judgments. And uh, so um, that actually, if you take all the features, in fact, most people personality disorder can also be diagnosed with another mental health condition, non-personality disorder. So from a, a pure logical point of view, it's a very vague and uh, poorly defined and concept. So let's take its analysis of disease. It's a label. You know, then you might say, well, is the label useful? Because some people, you're saying, some clients may find the use label useful because it allows them to reclaim the fact that they have a trauma. My own belief on that is you don't need that particular label. You can still say I have, you know, uh, the effect I suffer from the effects of trauma. You don't have to say I have a personality disorder. You can say I suffer from the effects of trauma. And the problem is that I don't see a particular use for the label, but I do see a lot of harm associated with the label. It's incredibly stigmatizing. It's one of the most stigmatizing labels in medicine. All the evidence shows that doctors see these as deceitful, manipulative. They tend to try and avoid them. They distance from them. And um, they actually exclude them from services. And like, I know this from my own practice. You'll hear doctors saying, oh, that person's a personality disorder. And immediately it's like, don't go near them. And, um, uh, and so... Uh, I absolutely, I'll I, I, I go for it. I loathe the label. <laughs> I absolutely loathe the label. Uh, I think uh, there is no way I would call any of my loved ones a personality disorder. And if anyone tried to call them a personality disorder, I would go mad. And there is no way you see a doctor being diagnosed with a person, you know, called a personality disorder. So I think, you know, it's... And it's, it's, I also think it's classist. I think it is, you know, because most of the features that, and most of the people who come from this come from poverty and it's well recognized that the features that we use to diagnose personality disorder, the behaviors are rooted in poverty and trauma. They're the two main causes for these behaviors. And so therefore it becomes classist, it becomes middle-class people defining the abnormal personalities of those living in, in, in areas of deprivation and who are traumatized. So I really would love to get rid of this. I think you could, again, Absolutely, people who suffer from trauma should own the trauma and recognize that my behaviors and my problems relate to a past history of trauma. And, you know, they, they shouldn't be feeling, they shouldn't have to get a, a disease label to feel, not to feel bad, you know, to feel good about themselves. You know, absolutely, we have a, uh, we owe you a debt when you suffer from trauma because we didn't protect you in childhood, when you suffer from the effects of poverty because we didn't get rid of inequality. So you don't need to be apologizing and absolutely name the trauma and we'd see we need to get service in to help you with that trauma part of a wider thing isn't it where we kind of medicalize distress so we see what are social problems through a biomedical lens which then has the effect of the the problem is reduced to the patient the individual rather than being seen in its broader social context um yeah or supporting communities that are still suffering from deindustrialization, loss of jobs, globalization, um, certainly in Scotland and other places. And, and that takes the lens off the potential solutions because the potential solutions are addressing inequality and reducing the, the effects of childhood trauma and uh, looking at what are the factors that cause childhood trauma. If you really want to affect it, don't be giving money to doctors, look at social services that can address these issues. Yeah. Complex PTSD seems to have slightly come into vogue as a label um, for 
what seems to me to be quite similar behaviors you know difficulty my my feeling about labels is i often see labels they often a lot of labels don't actually represent a disease disorder so for example adhd i have relatives with adhd and it's not a disease it's a normal spectrum it's like neurodiversity Um, it's a normal spectrum of just there's a lot of variety in people but there could be uses to having labels because I see, for example, in a school system, it's a very narrow system that only works for people who sit still and can pay attention and, uh, you know, are good at interrelational skills. And people who can't pay attention are um, can't sit still or can't concentrate, need a label. And people who can't have difficulties forming close relationships need labels to get the service to them to they need. So these labels are purely uh, signposts for the services they need to survive in the system that we've devised. And... I think that's where a label can be very useful. And if we can reduce the stigma of these labels by saying to people, it means no more than that. There's still a wonderful human person at the end of the label. And there's a different human person and we love diversity and humanity, the range of humanity. Then we can um, broaden people's minds rather because if you medicalize it, you just still mean to, you actually may even concentrate the stigma. And the difficulty probably occurs when we apply the label, but without providing the help. Yes. Um, because sort of specific therapy and counselling for personality disorder is not easy to access in the NHS at the moment. Maybe it's better in, in I Ireland. I, I, I've never seen any of We're going to have to leave things there. But thank you so much for joining us. I think really fascinating conversation. Was there anything else about anything that we've talked about that you wanted to add? Or No, just congrats on the podcast. and looking forward to listening to it. And well done. It's great to get uh, those views out there. So well done. Thanks a lot for talking, um, Austin. Oh, Tom, my pleasure. See you then, Joanna. Mm-hmm.